This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Jeff Stewart studied communications at BYU and then completed a master's degree in marriage and family therapy at Auburn University. He's worked as a marriage and family therapist for the past 20 years and currently owns a private practice, a group practice, and he runs a pornography and sexual addiction and betrayal trauma recovery program called Lifestar. He's also been a relationship columnist for Meridian Magazine for the past five years, and he's co-authored a book on couples' addiction recovery and produced workbooks and audio programs. His latest project is a YouTube marriage education vlog with his wife, Jody called Loving Marriage. Jeff has been married for 22 years, and he and his wife have four children, ages 9 to 20. Now for our interview with Jeff Stewart. Well, I'm excited to have Jeff Stewart with me here today. And actually, Jeff, I've been aware of you for quite some time. I know, I know. Our paths <laughs> have crossed is, lots of different times. Which is fun, and I'm um, I'm a fan of your Meridian articles. <laughs> oh, thank you. Jeff is is a knowledgeable guy in the gospel, but also just in in uh, relationships and in how we connect with one another, how we deal with our pain and our struggles, and um, I wanted to talk to him a lot about that today, but I wanted to set the stage a little bit and uh, go back to Jeff's formative years, and he can talk a little bit about um, his upbringing and and his experience with the church early on. Yeah. Do you want me to just dive in? Yeah. Tell you my story? Yeah. Yeah. So I I always joke that I sort of grew up with like an inverted grapes of wrath type of story. We moved from California back to Oklahoma instead of the other way around, like Uh in the old old novel. But um, I was born in California and my parents are both from Southern California and lived there until I was seven. But my my father moved our family to Oklahoma um, in a rural community that had one stoplight and the nearest church building, the nearest, our branch met in a Seventh-day Adventist church building because they met on Saturdays. And so we used it on Sundays. They were right. very kind. And we met in that building on Sundays and had to move all their hymn books and bring in our hymn books. And, and that was 30 miles away from my house. And we, uh, and our stake center was an hour away. Uh, church dances were an hour, sometimes two hours away. It was just very spread out. And my family uh, came into the into that branch and there weren't a lot of uh, strong families in that branch at the time. And so my, my parents came in and they were put right to work. And my father had been, um, you know, my, both my parents had been members. Um, my dad joined when he was 12, but pretty much their whole lives and were very active in the church and were there to really build up the branch. They, they were so needed. And so by default, all six kids were also really needed. And I thought that's how everybody's experience in the church was. I didn't know any different. And so next thing I knew, uh, we were all taking piano lessons so that we could be the church pianist on Sundays playing for sacrament meeting at, you know, age 12 and um, c- carrying two or three callings and having to really just carry this little branch. And there were some amazing families and people, and they're just the, the greatest folks. And uh, the branch grew over time, and now they, they're a ward and, and so on. But at those early days, uh, you really were needed, and it really made a big difference in how I understood uh, church service and 
you know, President Hinckley talked about needing a, a friend, a calling, and a, and a and to be nurtured by the good word. And all three of those were on, you know, uh, just just uh, high levels of all three of those in my my growing up years. There, we were very needed. There was a sense of community, and of course, we were taught the gospel. And so I was nurtured in that environment. And then, of course, when I would go to school in our little high school. Uh, or my the, the school district, you know, my graduating class in 1992 was 80-something kids. Wow. And so everybody knew who I was, that I was a member of the church and that um, I was different than them. There were, I think, 17 churches in my community in, of 2,000 people. They, it was a very religious community. And there were... Um, I don't know how they had enough people for each church. I never figured that out, but there were just so many different churches and everybody went to church on Sunday. The town was dead on Sundays. And they knew that we were, uh, you know, we were members of the church. And um, there were a couple of other kids in my school that um, were less active or whatever. We were the really only active members of the church um, in my school, my siblings and I. And so I grew up very uh, lonely in that sense uh, my first real LDS friends, uh, I didn't meet any any kids that were of my same faith, really, that I connected with and spent time with until I went to BYU. Hmm. Um, wow. You know, I was 18 years old. Um, so I grew up having to do navigate a lot of this on my own uh, with my siblings and my family support. But it's different not having friends that aren't members of the church. And that, for me, was a really defining uh, experience because I had to figure out if I really believed all this stuff or not. Right. It's it's a little easier when you're in a homogeneously LDS community yep. to kind of just move in in the ways that we do as a church culture because that's just how things are. But when you grow up in a place where you are one of few, mm-hmm. you have to you have to know early on. I think whether or not you're you're in or you're out, which can be both a blessing and a challenge, especially at a young age. Yeah. When would you say? Uh, your testimony really started taking root, and and how did you deal with perhaps some of the persecution that you faced as a a member of the church in a small community where people didn't understand you and your beliefs? I, my earliest experiences of feeling the spirit came through music. Um, we had a little branch choir. And I loved singing with my dad, even though he was the branch president, he would still make time for, for branch choir. And, um, I remember my dad sang tenor and I would, and I had a high voice (laughs) as a kid. So I would sit next to him and sing tenor. And I remember hearing harmonies for the first time and feeling, uh, the spirit of the words and the music, you know, with like what, 10 people, five people. I mean, the choir was so small, but I could feel and hear, um, what the spirit felt like. And I knew that I was in a place I wanted to be. It was something for me that um, it wasn't it wasn't a burden. Even though there were sometimes I wanted to skip choir because we would do it right after church and just it'd be a long day uh, driving and having to wait out there. But for the most part, I really enjoyed it and um, learned to love the hymns. And the hymns are a huge part of my anchor. Uh, just sacred music is is a huge part of of my connection to God and to the divine. And uh, and so I think early on for me, I would say, I don't know, 10, 12, somewhere in there. Um, and I've continued to, to you know, love that. And I'm, I always try and sing in the choir whenever I can. Um, but as far as the persecution piece, 
that really didn't start for me. At least I didn't know consciously that it was going on. I don't know if kids left me out or if I wasn't included. You know, you just are kind of living your life. Um, I'm pretty extroverted, so it wasn't hard for me to make friends and connect with kids. But I really started to notice some of the persecution probably when I was around 10th grade. So around 15, 16 years old. And there was a, uh, a movie that was made in the 80s called The Godmakers that a former member of the church, Ed Decker, had, had created. And um, it, was, it was really just a, um, a shock to me that people could hate our church so much. I didn't understand. I'd never been exposed to that. Um, and uh, a friend of ours, he was, uh, he was a couple years older than me, he was investigating the church at the time. And word got out that this guy was looking into joining the Mormon church. And boy, it's like everybody came out of the woodwork with pamphlets, videos, you know, so people gave him copies of the Godmakers. They were already like prepared to, and it was very direct and very in our face. And so this friend of ours uh, came home, uh, he brought this home to our house and, and was talking to my dad about it. We were really close with him. And my dad said, well, let's watch it. Let's watch it and talk about it. My dad wasn't afraid of it. I love that response. I think that's really yeah. powerful. He wasn't like, oh, I got to throw that away. He, he said, let's watch it. So we did. And I was scared. I remember feeling scared like, well, is it going to make me think something different about this thing that I, that's a huge part of my life and that I love? I loved church. I loved, um, I loved everything about it. I really did. I had a very, uh, it, it was my community. It helped me feel like a part of something. And I watched it, and I thought it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. And it was cool because my dad would pause it, and we would talk about it. And my dad did such a good job. My dad was so calm about it. He had no defensiveness in him at all. He knew that it would stand up. And, and this young man ended up joining the church. And then we went to Nauvoo on a, on a youth trip, um, which was only about six hours or so from my house. And that was kind of a second witness for me. Um, being there in Nauvoo and being where the prophet was and having those experiences there. So there were some real key moments for me that had, you know, where I really was able to say, yeah, I choose in, I want this, mm -hmm. like this is, this is important for me. I think what your father did is, is precisely what we as individuals and as parents in a culture where we're just bombarded with so much because of the internet age and, and all the information that's at our, at our fingertips, that we have to be prepared to hear information uh, that may conflict with what we believe in, not feel threatened, not be afraid, and, and face it head on. And when we can do that calmly, especially for our children, with confidence that truth will win out, <laughs> truth yeah. will out, that um, all will be well. I think for myself, that's been very key as I, have, as I have been on my own faith journey of being able to learn more about church history, about uh, practice and policy and doctrine that may sometimes be uncomfortable and just sit with it right. and be patient and have faith through right. the process. What a great example. Yeah, he was so calm about it. I didn't know I was on a faith journey at that time. I didn't know that I was choosing consciously. I look back on it now and realize, no, I did choose. I had to choose whether I was going to you know, look into this further or if it was really... And, and he gave me that option. I really appreciated that. He didn't shield me from it. 
Well, so let's let's fast forward. You're a, you're a father of mm-hmm. four. Yep. And you have been practicing as a therapist for twenty years now. Twenty years. Yeah. Okay. So you you have seen probably a great deal of ups and downs in in a lot of lives <laughs> in yes. the past twenty years. Um, and I I really appreciate the work that you do, partly because of my own backstory. Yeah. As you counsel people who are in their most painful and vulnerable states, often working with people that are dealing with addiction or uh, who are victims of betrayal trauma, as we call it, uh, who live with spouses with addictions or children, uh, how has your your testimony and your anchor in the gospel helped you help these people and find hope and healing? That's a great question. You know, I, I feel I, I really connected with President Hinckley, um, Gordon B. Hinckley. He was he was the prophet when I was um, when I went on my mission. Actually, no, he, he became the prophet after I got home off my mission. But he was he was sort of the prophet of my young adulthood. And one thing I loved about him was his optimism and his his understanding that. And I think he said this a lot. Things will work out. He just had that confidence that everything was going to work out. And he didn't have to explain why or how it would work out. And I, I really took note of that as I started my career because I would see things that were so unfair, um, things that church leaders would do to people, things that people would do to each other, parents would do to their kids, you know, spouses, just these deep injustices that had no, absolutely no excuse. And you have to, for me, I had to walk this really fine line of, really being with people in their pain, really validating them and letting them know what happened to you was not okay. And this is really hard and this hurts. And you have every reason in the world to feel this way. Anybody would feel this way. And at the same time, hold a space for hope, hold a space for this optimism that things are going to work out. I have been, I'm continually, after 20 years, people wonder, how do you keep doing this? Because I am constantly reminded of how resilient the human spirit is. I mean, we are made of light. My wife's uncle, who passed away recently, talked about this. He was dying of cancer, and he had some very powerful visions right before he passed where he had this confirmation. He says, nobody can do anything to us to truly destroy us because we are made of light. We are, we are light. We come from light. And he says, nothing can destroy us, nothing. Can. And, I, and that really resonates with me. I never had words for it. But as I've worked with people over the years and seen people come out of situations that I think I had even given up on and seeing that their marriage has made it or something turned around or 10 years later they had this experience, I just believe we're in God's hands. And I believe that he is so deeply aware of us and is, um, as Elder Maxwell says, relentless in his redemptiveness. He just stays with us. And I'm a father. I have four children. Um, last night in our, uh, we call it family circle where we study the come follow me curriculum. We were talking about this, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. And I just looked at my kids and I said, I'm keeping track of all of you. And I, I know where you are. I care about where you are. I think about you every day and I get it wrong so much of the time. And so if we have a father and mother in heaven who are, omniscient and perfected and 
have really got this thing down. We're going to be okay. So that, that has just been manifest to me over and over and over again in the worst kind of suffering. And I will be the last person to stick a smiley face sticker on anybody's life and just say, you know, just cheer up. Happiness is a choice. Like, no, I don't do that. I know that some people, it is just a grind to feel hope and to feel happy. But I just trust God. I trust that he knows them and he is with them and he will help them find he'll help them find relief. I just believe that. I see it all the time. I love all of that that you share, uh, the resilience of the human spirit. Yes. Um, and I think perhaps that's one of the greatest gifts that I have been given in the last 15 years, uh, watching my own parents heal from addiction mm-hmm. and betrayal trauma. Um, but the hope that I feel for myself and for others whose lives are, they're breaking down, mm-hmm. they're in chaos, and yep. that the atonement of Jesus Christ reaches deeper and farther than, than what we ever truly give it credit for. And I know that as a, as a young person, I, I'm quite a black and white person, <laughs> and okay. so I think that that was, that was helpful to me, mm-hmm. uh, it protected me to some extent. Um, when I was young, because it kept me out of trouble. But also, it made me perhaps a little less forgiving and less uh, willing to give people latitude right. uh, to make mistakes. Again, myself included in that. Yeah, for sure. And and I'm just, as I grow older and as I see that God can fix broken things, the, the lives of people can be in shatters yep. and fragments on the floor and that God is powerful enough and strong enough to take our our mess and clean it up and and what's remarkable make something even more beautiful than what was there before. Oh yeah. I feel like the more that this message that you share of resilience and of hope, but also being in a space of I, I see your pain, I can be in that space with you and I don't have to fix it because God can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even Jesus himself, and this is a story I, you know, I've heard several people share, but I love it. I mean, even Jesus, when he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, still cried with his family, still spent time with them. And I mean, he could have very easily invalidated that whole emotional experience and just said, so I'm the savior. And I have power to do this, and I'm just going to fix it. And he could have just made it better quickly. I don't know how long he wept with them. I have no idea. I don't think it was just a couple minutes. And I think that that, that human experience of, of feeling, of grieving, of loss, uh, all of that stuff, it, it draws us together as a community. It's really, there's something about mourning with those that mourn. And I, and I love... I love, I just feel like in the ch- in the church culture now, I'm seeing a lot more. I see it in the Ensign. I see it in General Conference. I, I hear it across the pulpit more, and I feel like it's shifting, which is it's okay for things to be messy, and none of us have to panic and button this up and put a bow on it and just talk about how wonderful things are going to be. Of course, we all know how it's going to end. We all know that. But it's also really important to stay in the mess with people and let people know they're not alone. What recommendations would you give to individuals who are dealing with 
messes, either personally or family members, loved ones, who they want to suffer more and they want to mourn with those that mourn. How, how do we do that better in the church? I think we have to be comfortable with our own tolerance for messiness and pain in our own lives. And like you said, if, if, you're, if you're harsh and judgmental of yourself and don't give yourself room to be human, you won't give other people room to be human and you'll try and shut it down. So I think when you look at your own mistakes, how do you handle your own mistakes? Do you, um, do you have compassion on yourself? Do you recognize that you're, you're growing and learning and do you look back on those experiences as opportunities for growth? Or do you beat yourself up for the mistakes you made and hide them and don't share them with others? I, I feel like it starts with ourselves. We have to have a personal narrative of how we see growth and, and just kind of development. And do we make room for ourselves to, to go through a process and to not know the answers and to take the detour and to come back and then to recognize and then to apologize and to clean up? And I mean, that's all of us. But a lot of us pretend that um, somehow we can only... It's kind of like a math problem. We just want to show people we found the answer, but we're scared to show them our, our messy work of how we got there and all the scribbles. And I think when you show your work to yourself and to others, um, you know, people who have earned the right to see that work, I don't think you need to broadcast it to the world. But I think it's important to be willing to share and open up about your own struggles, and then people will feel safer with you. So when I'm thinking about what is it, how do I sucker, how do I stay with people? that are struggling is that when I'm at peace with my own process and my own humanness and my own self-compassion and my own awareness that I'm not God and God is carrying me and that we're all fellow travelers, it's so much easier for me to see someone and just say, yeah, me too. I get it. Like I'm right here with you. There aren't easy answers and I'm not going to try and fix this for you, but I'm not going to leave you alone in it. Um, I love what Brene Brown says. Her mom, Brene's mom taught her this she said, when somebody's in pain or somebody's suffering, you move in closer and don't look away. Like, I love that sentiment. And that's to me, is what Jesus, Jesus did and does. He moves right in and doesn't look away. And, and I feel like as a culture, um, do we really take that whole mourn with those that mourn things seriously? Or do we just try and make them feel happy all of a sudden? I feel like we miss something if we just try and go right to the happiness. I agree. And, you know, again, there's hope. In my Sunday school class, we talked about empathy. Yeah. And, oh, it was refreshing. And I was yeah. so proud yep. of our bishopric. Yep. And so I, I, I do think there's so much power in our discipleship as we, as we study and learn more about how to, to empathize and truly mourn with those that mourn. And, and again, I think that that's, that's made possible when we understand the core doctrine that God is in charge, that God loves all of his children, even when we don't care or love him or know him. Yeah, right. And that he will give us time. Because for me, I feel like, again, with, with life experience, my relationship with God has evolved mm -hmm. and my testimony has evolved. Um, in watching your own your own family struggle and also have joys and difficulties. And as you've watched uh, other people in their life's journey, um, how, how has that changed your relationship with God and how you connect with him? Well, first I'll say that I've, I'm, I've, I, one thing I've struggled with personally since I was young was formally praying and connecting with God in formal prayer. 
there's never been anything natural about that for me. I don't know if it's just too abstract. I don't know. But kneeling down and talking, I don't know if I just have ADHD or something, but my mind, I've had such a challenge, even on my mission, even when I was a bishop, you know, and I felt pressure like, oh, I should, I should be the best prayer <laughs> in the ward because I'm the bishop. You know, I just always felt like I was failing because I just didn't formally connect with God. But over the years, I've given myself a lot of compassion about that and recognized, you know, I'm very connected to God. I just, I just feel him and I talk with him and I think about him and my conversations aren't these formal start and stop type things. And so I still pray. I try and pray. I force myself to actually kneel down and pray. It's work for me. And I think in the Bible dictionary, it says that prayer is a form of work. And I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> so I, I just say that to kind of answer, to set up this, the answer to, my, to your question is that there have, been, there have been key moments in my own journey and with my children where there was no other option than to formally pray. And in those moments, I always start off my prayer apologizing that I don't pray more. And I would always feel like, okay, I've got to admit this and get this out of the way because I feel like I'm just the ungrateful kid coming back and asking for help because I'm brought to my knees again by life and my own mistakes and stupidity or my, my kids or my wife or just life crowding in on me. And then I would start my prayer and just be like, okay, I'm just so sorry I never talked to you formally. <laughs> But it never mattered. It was almost like in those moments when I would do that, I would always get this feeling of like, yeah, 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 I know that already. Like, I'm just so glad you're here. <laughs> and when I would feel that, I would always just be like, oh, right, that's who this guy is. Like, he doesn't, he's not judging me and upset at me because I'm not very good at this. It's almost like he understood something about me that I didn't even understand about myself. And it makes me, it just makes me so emotional to think about like how good he is. I'm not even that good with my own kids. You know, sometimes my kids ask me for something and they've been jerks or they've been ungrateful that I'm always like wanting to withhold somehow. That's never been my experience with God. Not once. I've never felt him be stingy with his love ever. And so when I, when I've gone through different trials and situations, I keep having this repeated experience with him, which is, oh, hey, it's me again, <laughs> formally. I know like I'm keeping the commandments and I'm trying to do the best I can and I'm trying to help people and I'm trying to listen to good music and whatever. I'm doing all these things. But when I, when I enter into that personal space with him, it's like he's already set a place for me and he was like waiting for me and expecting me and just so happy I showed up. And you would think that that would like make me just like be an automatically awesome prayer. Like I would just like love it. No, it's still work for me. It's still really hard. I'm 44 years old. It's not been easier for me than it was when I was 12. I don't know why. And maybe I need to discipline myself. I don't worry about that anymore. I try and pray. I approach him. It's still not feeling supernatural, but I have these experiences with him on a pretty regular basis when I just feel like he sees me, knows me, cares about me, when I get anxious or afraid or worried about how things are going to work out in my life, with my work, with 
relationships, I get this this recurring message from him that, um, see, I'm right here. And so he'll make something work out. He'll like send a message. There'll be something. It's just like these little, I think Richard Craycroft, uh, BYU professor of English, he called it jolts of joy and spiritual surprises. That's what it feels like to me. And I feel like God is just like delights in surprising me on a regular basis that he's still there and doesn't have some rigid um, sort of expectation that I approach him in like a, a textbook specific way. And he's just so happy that I'm his son. That blows my mind, even talking about it now, but it's real for me. Mm-hmm. And that's how I stay close to him. That's how I stay connected. That's what keeps me going. I think that you had said that you were reading about the the lost coin and the lost sheep and yeah. the prodigal son. I was just listening to something about that this morning. Um, but aren't we aren't we all prodigals? Uh, yeah, and <laughs> and that there's so much symbolism in that story, where the father, I mean, the, the son had to come home, like he had to come to himself. That's right. That's right. His father didn't come searching for him, but he was always there waiting. And the moment that his son did come to himself and he he was going prepared to be a second-class citizen in his father's house, to be a servant, but that his father came running when he saw that his son was willing to repent and to right. change. And I think that that is precisely how our, our Heavenly Father and our Savior are with us. When we understand that, I think going back to that ability to mourn with those that mourn, it, it starts with this, uh, this self-compassion and this full recognition that God loves us right where we are at. Oh, yeah. Not, not for the person who we could be, but right where we're at and that he is always waiting with open arms to receive us and to bless us. Sometimes I think we get kind of confused with the Old Testament God, like, boy, he seems like a wrathful God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there, there are consequences for choices. Not, I'm not saying that, but that God is always there, ready to, to receive us and to bless us and give us all that's his, which is remarkable. Right. And even when, even when I've had consequences in my life where I've had to face the music, as it were, and really have to repair damaged trust or repent from a sin or really go through a process, you know, I still feel that love. And, and so he applies it perfectly, the, the, the consequences, the justice, the, the correctness, you know, correcting behavior and correcting your path. But it's just done in a way that no human's ever done for me, just with so much love. And that's, you know, that's hard to fake. Like when you feel that, you feel it. It's, I mean, it's undeniable. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for taking the time to be on this podcast with me today. You're welcome. The question that I want to end with is, why are you choosing faith in Christ and his church? Why are you still rowing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it really goes back to this theme that I've talked about, and I, I found the scripture that I think for me, it's in the Book of Mormon in First Nephi eleven seventeen, where it says, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. I've never had an institutional faith crisis with the church. Um, for some reason, none of that, I mean, I have a lot of questions and there's a lot of things I, you know, maybe disagree with, or I would do differently, or I just don't even fully understand, you know, procedurally or policy wise or whatever. But as an organization, I give the church a lot of room to be, I guess, human as it were. 
um, because I've needed that. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I was, I was called as a bishop at 29 years old, had a six-week-old baby, three little boys that were just wild and crazy, and I was very overwhelmed and stressed out. And that was a real, that was a real dark, difficult struggle in my life, um, trying to keep everything going at the same time. And I made a lot of mistakes, and I saw how messy it is, and yet the church continued on, and God's, God's love was able to still, and I still have people today that will contact me and, and tell me about something good that happened during that time, and I, I, don't, I don't remember it, I don't see it, I don't have any clue how that could have happened during that time, because I was, I was so in over my head and struggling. So I look at that and I think, I don't know how all that works, but God's love keeps shining through over and over and over again through the cracks in the church, through the cracks in my own life, my own mistakes, through the cracks in all the messiness and all the big giant craters of people's lives that I work with. He just keeps showing up and filling that in. He's everywhere. He's totally in charge. And so when I see his love, that it just keeps showing up all the time, everywhere, I don't worry about a lot of other things. And to me, it just almost expands the space it expands. It feels generous. It feels forgiving. It feels like everything's really just going to be okay. And so I stay. I've 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 looked at I've I've I grew up around other churches. I'm no stranger to other other organizations. But this is the place where I have felt consistently that love and the teachings that reinforce that love are everywhere in our church. And when I see them and find them, I hold on to them. And it's all just it's all just matching for me. It just feels like this is where this is where I need to be. And this is where I feel like um, those core doctrines are taught the clearest, which is specifically about how God is a father and loves and see his children, that we have heavenly parents and that we are a, we are a family. and families are messy, and I'm okay with that. And so, that's why I keep rowing. Jeff, thank you. And thank you for your sharing your love and your light and testimony of, of the church. Yeah, Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.